0: when I was in school, graduate school, uh, Bible college. I heard it several times, but I remember the first time I heard it, it kind of set me back. The practical theology professor uh, was, it's really how you be a pastor kind of class. He was talking through, he saying, saying, gentlemen, uh, yours will be a tough task. And then he paints this picture of a church in upheaval, and disunity, and ineffectiveness, and pain. And I think he's trying to scare us all. But he says, you will fight in your, in your time as a pastor an incredible, incredible war. And the war you will fight will have the potential to totally upend the church and destroy the reputation of Christ in your community and on and on and on and on. And he, he says, the, the, the battle you will fight though will not be on the, the inspiration of scripture. And it's not going to be about the virgin birth and it won't be on doctrinal orthodoxy. No, the battle you will have to fight will be the worship wars. The worship wars. You know, it does make you ask, what is it about worship that is so emotionally charged? What is worship? What is biblical worship? What is true worship? And of course, we know the answer to that question, right? What is true worship? True worship is the way I worship, right? The what I like. And we all of us have a tendency and we all have this propensity to, I'm going to make up a word here, righteousness eyes, the way we worship and our motivation, and we all have the same propensity to demonize the forms and the motivations of the other folk who worship outside our sphere. And the farther out they are, the more demons they usually have. But what is worship? You know, is, that God accepts. Is it um, high church? Or is it more contemporary? Is it bells and smells or is it lights and sights? Is it uh, you know organ and chimes and, and suits or is it jeans and drums and guitars is it is it what is it? Is it something that 's boring? I have to just put up with? Is it something that 's too loud? I just have to endure what is biblical worship that 's a huge question isn 't it my goodness huge question in our in our time today Good question for us to ask you know when the reformers uh, took on the church, Martin Luther's goal was never to split from the, from the church. It wasn't his plan. He, he, he loved the church. he thought there could only be supposed to be. there was only one church. But the problem was is that the church in 1500 had picked up so much stuff along the way. When it started off, it was pure, but as it went on, it was gathering all kinds of things and canonizing stuff it shouldn't canonize and practices that weren't right. and so he sought to reform it, The reformers, Reformation. Let me ask you, do you need perhaps a worship reformation? Now I didn't ask. Does the guy next to you need a worship reformation? Or does the church down the road need one? Or does our church need one? Or who? Let me ask, do you? Is it, is it just possible? I mean, it's not probable, I got that. But is it possible that somewhere along the line, baggage, history, denominational stuff, things that happened that weren't good, things that happened that weren't good, perhaps inside you, just understanding of what worship is just gets a little bit cloudy and mixed up. And it would be nice to have it aligned with what God says. That's the goal of this series that we're starting. Uh, have a worship reformation within us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came across a nameless minority woman who had an incredible question. One question, what is real worship? And Jesus delivered perhaps the most profound discourse in Scripture regarding what worship is. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn with me to John chapter 4? John chapter 4. Incredible, incredible text. We're going to go back come back to this text multiple times throughout this series because it's just so, so deep. But let's get right into it. John chapter 4, beginning verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now we're going to stop there. We're not going to do this for every line. I got that. But let me stop there for just a second. He had to go through Samaria. Um, verse before, if we, found, if we read it, we would find out that Jesus was in... Let me see if, if, this, if I can get this to work here. Jesus was in... Yeah, he was in, he was in Judea, down here, Jerusalem, or wherever it is right there. And he had to go to Galilee, up here, right? And so you'd think, well, of course, he's got to go through Samaria. That's Samaria. He's got to go through it. That makes sense. But that's not the way the Jews did it. The Jews loathed the Samarians. So when a Jew needed to go from Judea to Galilee, they crossed the Jordan. They went up this side, then they crossed back. That was the normal route. But it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. John wants you and I to realize that Oh no, there's this, he had to do this. There's something going on here. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground. Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, Samaritans and Jews pretty much um, uh, hated each other's guts. They, they, they They weren't good friends, and so Jesus is in hostile territory. It's high noon. Verse 7, it says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, so he's hanging out by the well by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans, or vice versa. Again, understanding where the Samaritans come from is real helpful. Uh, Way back when, 7... 22. remember right after Solomon, the, the nation of Israel split. It was North Israel, South Israel. We got that. 722, the Syrians came in and took out the Northern Empire. And what they did, their, their standard practice, is they took the best of the people, the sharpest, the brightest, the healthiest, the strongest, they took them away. And they did this for all of their conquered peoples. And they didn't just bring them all to Assyria. They displaced them. And the goal was, again, to keep people's equilibrium so off that they would not be able to join back together and start a revolt. And so the people they put there in the vacuum that they had created were people from all kinds of different people groups who intermarried with some of the Jews left. These half-breed Jewish folk became the Samaritans. Now, these Samaritans claimed the first five books of the Jewish Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. Everything beyond that, according to a Samaritan, was not canonized scripture. It just wasn't. Also keeping in mind that every other people group out there had their own God. Baal or Chemish or Moab or, or, or Asherah. They had their own gods. Except the Samaritans. They had the same God that the Jewish folk had. But the Samaritans said, we've got the same God you guys have, but we're worshiping him worshiping him Right? Well, that made the Jewish folk angry, as you can imagine, and vice versa. And so, so they hated each other pretty much. Also, this gal points out that I'm a woman. According to, to rabbinical tradition, for a rabbi to talk to a woman, even if it's his own wife, is at best a waste of time. And at worst, it's keeping him from the Torah. And so this gal recognizes this, and she says, "What? In the, you're breaking all kinds of protocol here, buddy. You are really outside the, the, the box What are you doing as a Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman? What is that about? And then in verse 10, Jesus answered If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? She's got a bit of sarcasm to her. She's just got a bite. By the way, you know she doesn't give him a drink. The whole story, she never gives him a drink. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his flocks? and Buddy, you might not know that this is, this is Abraham's grandson's well. And you're talking how you really don't need this water. you got a living well. You don't need this water. Are you better than Jacob? He drank out of this well. So she's kind of giving him a little bit. And Jesus answered... Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, what we don't know from the written word is the tone in which she said it. Was she sincere? If she was sincere, then she's thinking that somehow Jesus has got real water that will make her never thirst again. I'm not so sure she was all that sincere. I think she's still a little bit sarcastic. She's kind of giving it to him a little bit yet, mocking him a little bit. And so Jesus responds in verse 16. He told her. Now keep in mind, up to this point, Jesus had done nothing in this conversation but talk about thirst. He's going to continue. It doesn't look like it, but he's still going to be talking about thirst. He says, go, call your husband and come back. And she's got to kind of stop and stare at this, stare at this guy for just a minute. Who is this, this, this Jewish rabbi talking to me, asking me of stuff, offering me something that I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about, but it sounds somewhat hopeful. Is this guy crazy? Is it Don Quixote? Who is this guy that I'm talking to? So she looks at him and she says, she answers this question she says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is absolutely quite true. Well, you can imagine. Drops her water jar, you know, oh, well, how, that? how did this guy get my, hold of my personal file? And she recognizes that he knows stuff about her that um, maybe everybody in town knew because she came at high noon. Now the other gals would come to the well at dusk or in the morning. And they came, this is a place where they really let their veils down. I mean, They, they came in mass because of safety. They came because they had to carry, Lot the water was heavy. But they also came to socialize. But this gal comes to the well expecting to be alone. There's a reason why she wants to be alone because she's going to steal your husband, right? If, if in fact, you're you're not watching this gal. She's got got that kind of a reputation. And so the other gals, no doubt, are talking about her on a regular basis. So she's looking to be alone. And Jesus answers this way. And she says in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. You know stuff. Duh, right? Uh, Our fathers, and then she goes on. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, different things with this. Some have said that what she's doing here is she's trying to change the subject. I believe that. You know, it's getting a little bit hot. He's talking a little bit too personal. I better get us off on some tangent, on some esoteric theological argument issue so it's not as directed towards me. I don't think that's what she's saying, though. That's what's going on. Uh, I've had multiple opportunities in in my life, just blessings from God, to meet face-to-face with some, in my estimation, some incredible theological minds. I mean, it's really some some names of some folk who who are known for their theological depth and understanding. And when I get around them, when I know I'm going to be getting around them, you you, you got to know that what I'm doing is I'm putting together some questions. Some of the, my biggest things that are going on in my heart, in my mind, that I just can't figure out, that I've got issues with, that I'm going to say, hey, help me understand this. And so I think what this gal does here is she's looking at Jesus. This guy who is who, no doubt, she calls him a prophet, he's got supernatural spiritual ability somehow. I don't, she doesn't know who he is yet, but he is connected to heaven somehow. He has got an ability to discern and to share and talk and communicate incredible things. And so I think what she's doing is she reaches into the depth of her heart and she pulls out the question that has haunted her, that's kept her awake at night. The, the, the question that has that is, is caused her more consternation. You know, I was a youth pastor. I had a girl in my group. She started coming. And... Uh, Every night, she did a rosary, and she did it over and over and over and over again. She would talk to me later about this, and she'd say, I was so afraid of dying. I really wanted to know God, and I was doing it the way I thought we were supposed to do it, but I just wasn't sure. I wanted to know him, but I didn't. I think that's what the scale's doing. She comes before Jesus, and this thing that's been bothering her all this time, she says, How do you connect with God? Listen, you've got some sort of connection yourself. You know these things. Let me put it on the table. How do you do it? The way we were trained to do it, and I know you guys are doing it a different way, but how do you really connect? Uh-oh. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Keep in mind, the Samaritans only accepted those first five books of the Bible, right? Joshua on what wasn't part of the scripture in their mind. They knew some of the history, but it just wasn't canonical. This is important, because in Deuteronomy, it never mentions, those first five books, the name Jerusalem. Because they didn't know, Moses didn't know Jerusalem yet, but what he says in Deuteronomy 12 is when you get into the promised land, you look for the town that your God will choose, the place where your God will choose, and that's where you're supposed to set up your capital of worship to me. Well, again, they weren't accepting Joshua on, so they didn't really care about David's finding the threshing floor of Arunah and building the temple through Solomon and all the stuff that happened there. They didn't buy that. So they look through the Pentateuch. Where is this place? And they said, when Abraham comes into the promised land, the very first place he stops and builds a a altar is Shechem. It's Mount Gerizim. And then Moses tells us in Deuteronomy that when we go into the holy land, what we're supposed to do is as soon as we get in, we're supposed to stop at Mount Gerizim. He names the place and he says, there you are to say out loud the law, the Ten Commandments. You're supposed to shout it over the whole land to let the land know that this is really the law that is now part of this land. And so they put two and two together and said, the place he's chosen is Mount Gerizim. So as a matter of fact, what they do is they end up building their temple there. I mean, they had the same blueprints that the Jews had for the temple that they were going to build in Jerusalem. They had the same ones. And so they built one too. They built it on Mount Gerizim around 450. In 180, the Jews came in and said, we're not having this, and raised a thing. Now the Samaritans, you can imagine that helped their PR with each other. But they continued to go, Samaritans still continued to go up Mount Gerizim and offer sacrifices and on and on. That's what the woman's referring to. We're going here to worship and you guys are singing there. What are we supposed to do? And Jesus says, you guys are worshiping in ignorance. This is real huge because this is kind of very unpolitically correct. Kierkegaard said that the most important thing about your worship is your sincerity. He said it doesn't matter if you're out in a tribal place somewhere, it doesn't matter what you're worshiping, as long as you're really sincere, you're connecting with God. Sincerity is good, right? Hypocrisy is not good. Sincerity is good. It's got to be a part of the equation. But Jesus here says, you've got to worship in truth. And the reason why the Samaritans were off kilter wasn't their sincerity, it wasn't their, even their desire, they had turned off a good portion of Scripture. Shut it down. If you look back into verse 10, remember um, Jesus had asked the lady for her water and the lady said, Who are you? You know, I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. Don't ask me for water. In verse 10, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew, if you only knew who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. He says, Lady, the issue that that you have a problem with here is your ignorance. The, the, the principle here, huge principle, is, is ignorance equals hindrance. And Jesus is saying, what what the real hindrance to your worship is not a location, you know, here or there. there. Your, your problem is is ignorance. If you would have known me the way scripture says, if you would know God the way scripture says, you know what, that's going to change your response. If you would know me the way scripture says, and who the scripture says I am, that's going to change the way you talk to me. It's going to change everything. Their problem was ignorance. A key issue in, in worship, we want to point out all kinds of different peripheral things, secondary things. But Jesus says, those are secondary things. The most important thing, most significant hindrance to worship is ignorance. We have to be ignorance eradicators. Uh, A.W. A, a. Tozer said the most important thing about you about me is what you think about God what pops in your mind when you think about God um, someone turned me onto this book years and years and years ago The Knowledge of the Holy it's A.W. Tozer's magnum opus uh, short book 115 pages and let me just read out of this for just a second what he, what he says here fascinating stuff he says the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshipping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. He says it's impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right, while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. He says the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Worship is dependent on what you think about God. He says, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact that any man is, is and the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in the depth of his heart conceives God to be like. I, Twenty-three short chapters, five pages a chapter. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go through this this summer with, with my oldest children. I'd ordered a couple of these books months ago, and then it dawned on me, why not go through it with the body? Um, this is the challenge. This is what. We do. This is, by the way, the best has made the most profound impact on me of the character of God of anything I've ever read. Um, The goal is, this is is how this works, pick yourself up a copy. They're right outside, uh, across from the coffee stations. We're charging five bucks each, but you need to know they cost us almost ten each. Um, So it's a deal and a half. But pick one up. Then what you want to do this summer, here's the goal. You want to read it through twice. 23 chapters, I would go through it once, one a morning. Use it as devotional stuff. First time through, underline, one a day, underline. Then at the end, pray it through. What does this mean? Until you go through the whole, the whole thing. Then you want to do it again, second time. But at the end of each chapter, the second time through, this is the twist. I want to encourage you to write your own psalm to God. Now, the first Sunday in July, it's when we wrap this series up, we're going to be going over Hebrew poetry. It sounds like an exciting, winning Sunday, doesn't it? I'm hoping that you'll forget between now and then. But if you, if, and if you, if you do and you come, you will you will be surprised. It's, it's good. Hebrew poetry is simple. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to see, okay, how do these guys write the Psalms? Can we write our own personal Psalm taking this characteristic of God and how it intersects with my life? Basically a prayer back to God. Can you do that? Now, some of the artists among you are saying, yeah, that's cool. We can do that. Many of the rest of you are saying... Please. You know, I have to, that's not going to happen whatsoever. Let me encourage you, even if you've got the personality, give it a shot. This is not a Pulitzer surprise thing. Nobody will see this. Can you imagine, just imagine with me for a second, if we go through, as a church, focusing this summer on the character of God, who he is, and we're looking at his word prayerfully, folk, we're going through this thing twice, and then we're we're internalizing it by writing back to him a prayer of how his characteristic is intersecting with our life. Do, do, do not, how could we not be richer? How could our worship not rise up multiple levels? Whenever we're thinking biblene and we're thinking who he really is, he just said the problem with your worship is your ignorance. If we can eradicate some of that ignorance, all of our worship is going to raise multiple levels. Wouldn't it be a cool thing to be known? In Aerie, the church that... Really worships God, and it's not about the externals, it's about a, a spirit and truth, an internal thing, an understanding of who He is. Now, Acts chapter 17. This is cool. Paul. Looks at, uh, he goes to Athens, and this is what it says. It says, Paul stood in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So what you are ignorant of the very thing you are worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The end of this chapter, what he does, just a handful of verses, he goes through and he proclaims what the Bible says about who God is. No you know magic words, but the amazing thing is when he's done, a handful of folk, not everybody, but the people whose hearts were stirred, their lives were transformed just when they understood what God's word says. What God's word says. Would you think about and consider participating in the worship project this, this, this summer? Second principle we see here elsewhere is that we were made... For worship. You know, we we, uh, think about what is worship, and probably a good time to mention that. There are different, this is why it's difficult. There are several biblical words that are translated worship, but the major one means this it means to bow down. Second word means, it's used about worship, deals with, it says, it means to work, to serve. And the goal is that I'm not serving myself. That the king in my life is not me or something else. It is God. And we were all made for this. You know, some folk might think, you know, I I don't, I'm not into worship, man. It's not who I am. No, 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 no. You are. We're all made for this and everybody worships. The question is not will you worship, but what will you worship? For this gal, she was obviously into the relationship issue. She was trying to, to fill the, quench the thirst with her relationships. Yeah, I think that, um, Book Harry Potter has a great illustration on this that helps put it into perspective for me. At one point, Harry goes and he finds the mirror, Arista. And he stares into this mirror and he sees, in this mirror as he's looking into it, his deceased parents and family members. And they're loving on each other. This is is what he's always wanted. And he said, this is fantastic. And so he runs and he grits his friend, Ron. And he says, Ron, check out this mirror. Assuming that Ron is going to see Harry's family in it as well. But Ron doesn't see Harry's family. What Ron sees is himself as the supreme jock, basically. He's holding up the cup, and he was number one, and he was first. And so Harry's kind of scratching his head, what is this all about? And his mentor, Albus Dumbledore, comes to him and says, this is what the mirror is, Harry. The mirror doesn't reflect your face. It reflects the depth of your heart, your deepest desire Arista is desiresable backwards. It's your deepest desire. Let me ask you. Harry, of course, wanted his family. Ron lived in the shadow of his big brothers. He wanted to be number one in life. But if you were to look into the mirror of Arista, what would you see? What would be there? I propose that that's what you're worshiping. Until that is him and him alone, that's what you're worshiping. Oh, everyone worships. We were made to worship. We we're made to seek to, to have this thirst quenched. And we try all kinds of things that are dead ends, of course, to do it. But we were also created as a body to worship. Listen, I don't, if it's never on a plaque somewhere, if it's never framed, if it's never part of a strategic plan, if it's never decided by the board someplace behind closed doors, totally irrelevant. The primary reason why the church exists is to worship God. That's why we exist. Listen, I'm going to ask you to put on your CSI hats for just a minute. We're going to through, breeze through a bunch of verses so you're going to have to look close because it's going to be difficult to see. Why did God call us out of, of Egypt? Why did he redeem us in the first place? What was, what was his thinking? Why, why so? God says, he's talking to Moses, he says, I'll be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Continues the conversation. He says, then say to Pharaoh. He tells Moses this is the stuff that's going to be happening. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. So Moses goes, says, uh, then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you. He's talking to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. Ten plagues are going on. Every time Moses goes, he says this. Another plague. Pharaoh hardens his heart. He goes back then the Lord said to Moses go to Pharaoh and say to him this is what the Lord says let my people go so that they may worship me. Then the Lord said to Moses get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him this is what the Lord says let my people go so that they may worship me. Are you beginning to see it? Then the Lord said to Moses go to Pharaoh and say to him this is what the Lord the God of the Hebrew says let my people go so that they may worship me. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is a broken record, isn't it? Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. I don't think he wants us to be confused on this at all. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. Pharaoh's officials said to Pharaoh, How long will this man, Moses, be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? And then finally Pharaoh, during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Did you see it? You understand what? uh, Pharaoh had no question as to why the people were leaving. To worship. Pharaoh's court had no question as to why the people were leaving to worship. Moses had no question as to why the people were leaving to worship. But God's people, sometimes they get it all mixed up, don't we? Why were we saved? Well, obviously, because God needs me in heaven. Because heaven just wouldn't be the same without me. And so he figured out I needed to be there. That's That's why I'm saved. That's why I'm redeemed. Because he wants to bestow on I me mean, blessings somehow, maybe like show the whole world his power through giving me stuff. That's why, because his his goal is my, my happiness or joy. That's his goal. That's not the reason why he redeemed us. He redeemed us so that we might worship him, so that when we look into the mirror of said, the only thing there is him. That's why he, he redeemed us as his as his people. Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is what? To glorify God. Let's worship him and experience him. Know him forever. When Jesus was asked one time, what's the greatest commandment? What's Jesus say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That context is to worship him. It's why we were here. It's what we were brought out for that we might know him. Goes on, and Jesus says, yet a time is coming. He's talking to the woman. And it's now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. It's not about externals, ma'am. I know you're thinking Gerizim, it's going to be, that's done, it's over. Now it's not about that at all. Don't focus on the externals. See, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth uh, now if i was to say or if, that i am looking for people to worship me what might you think what kind of person goes around looking for people to worship him what kind of a god Is just like the wicked queen in cinderella you know she got to look in the mirror 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 on the wall who's the fairest one of all and he just enjoys hearing people say, oh, you are, you are, and all these people, you are God. And see if you ever break step with that when he's going to break the mirror and send you to hell because it's God, he can do that kind of thing. And so we're kind of stuck. I guess we just got to tell him what he wants to hear. And you can see where a lot of the folk outside the church think these kinds of things about Christianity, about God. But what if God knew that you and I were made for worship and that we're only going to find our joy In this life, in a creature creator relationship, a son father relationship, a a servant master relationship, we're only going to find our peace in that kind of relationship. We're only going to be able to understand what abundant life is in that kind of relationship. If he knew that, that you would only experience those things in that kind of relationship and he lets you go on and he really didn't care if you didn't click in or not, he wouldn't be a very loving God. He does not need our worship. Like our worship is so fantastic, it makes him feel good. He's God, he doesn't need our little worship. But we need to worship. We were made for worship. The woman said to him, and here's the next uh, principle the principle is that God is on a quest, He's on a quest for worshipers. And the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. The Samaritans were looking for the Messiah too. Now, keep in mind, they didn't accept everything from Joshua on. The Jews did. So they were looking for Messiah to be in the power and spirit of King David. And he was going to be a political warrior. But these guys were thinking, the Samaritans were thinking, nah, he's going to be more like Moses. He's going to be a a teacher. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be anointed by God, but he's going to teach us. And the woman here is saying, yeah, I I know. One day God's going to send somebody. And he's going to... Help me understand. Help us understand. Help his people understand how we can really connect with him. How we can really worship. And I just can't wait for the day when he sends this person and he's going to help us figure everything out and connect with him. He's going to show us. He's going to show me how I can connect with God. I can't wait. I'm waiting for him. And she's saying this to Jesus. And Jesus uh, looks at her and says, I know I am he. This is why he had to go through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with his scale. This summer, God is looking for worshipers. And I think he's looking among our group for worshipers. Question, I think, is, am I looking to be one? Or, you know what? Am I look at my, my mirror, uh, Eris said,'ve just got, God's just not in it right now. Maybe one day he'll get in. Maybe it's just in a little bit in the back, all peripheral, but that's not, not, not right now. But if the heart is such, regardless of your baggage, look at this woman's life. If the heart is such, regardless of, of even if, if you're, you're confused and you're messing up your religiosity, look at this woman's life. But if your heart is, oh God, I want to know you. He doesn't overstep or go around the, the, the ignorance aspect. It's got to be in truth. But he shows up. This this summer, if in fact we would say, Oh, oh God, would you make me a worshiper? Would, would you help me to connect with you? Would you help me have a clear understanding of who you are? Yeah, that's. He wants to show up. He wants to do that in our lives. Again, to think of a church where everybody, where, where I am, where we are worshiping as well as we could possibly be, Wow, wow.